I feel like Basil Fawlty, you know, where he like, runs around and does all the things in the hotel. Um, so the Bible reading this morning is taken from First um, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, thank you, Susie. God's word is indeed for living, and we're right in, you know, so really in a practical um, part of Peter's letter. But if you're joining us for the first time this morning, again, a very warm welcome to you. We're studying the letter of First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter to um, scattered Christians who are persecuted for their faith. They've been scattered around the Asia Minor region, what is now modern-day Turkey, and the purpose or the intent of Peter's writing is to inspire hope within them in the midst of their suffering. And not just any hope, but in verse 1, 3, a living hope. A living hope because Christ Jesus himself is alive and your hope is in him, and therefore it is a hope that you can put your trust in firmly. Um, We spoke last week how for all of chapter 1 right through to chapter 2, verse 10, Peter is kind of dealing with the horizontal grace, that grace that you have received as followers of Christ that God has poured upon you. And then he takes a, a bit of a turn and starts to consider the horizontal grace. So now that you've received God's vertical grace from heaven to you, how do you then live that grace out in your relationships with others, and particularly in oppressive situations? So we saw last week that Peter begins by addressing um, the citizens, and he talks about what it, what it is to live as a Christian citizen under an oppressive government. He then addressed slaves and spoke about how you express your faith, what it means to show God's grace uh, in both difficult and you know, normal circumstances under, uh, under your master. And then today he's going to talk about spouses and how they're to respond to one another because of the grace that God has uh, poured out upon them. And we see that in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, this kind of headline statement that really, in a sense, summarizes the heart of what Peter wants to communicate in his letter to these believers. How do you actually live out your faith in such a way that others may come to know Christ Jesus? So this is kind of the headline statement that everything hangs off under this particular section of Peter's letter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day 
he visits us. Peter's focus, if you like, for this whole section of his letter, kind of the heart of his letter, is he wants followers of Jesus to live in such a way that he's going to point people to Jesus. He wants followers of Jesus to live under the order of the day so that they actually maintain a credible witness. And he wants followers of Jesus to demonstrate through their deeds primarily what the grace of God actually looks like in practice in everyday life and how they relate to others. Um, so in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, he is addressing wives and husbands. Now, you might be looking at that and thinking, how come the wives get six verses and the husband only gets one? Why? Well, here's a few ideas. In this culture, and it's true, more women were coming to faith than men. Uh, and, you know, in fact, if you actually did a survey, there'd be more women in this church now than there are men. And so it's an interesting thing, but... The gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually learnt about this if you were with us during Jesus the Game Changer. The gospel, particularly when it first really started to emerge, was absolutely liberating for women. Because all of a sudden, Jesus and the church started to see women as being equals in God's eyes. And, uh, and under the Christian ethic, husbands were to have one wife, and they were actually to love that wife and to treat her as Christ um, gave up himself for the church. So it's an incredibly attractive um, religion, if you will, for women of this day. And so more and more women were actually coming to faith than men. So that's one um, potential reason why Peter gives more attention to wives. The other reason is that, in the, again, in this culture, the husband's faith would in fact become the family's faith. Uh, so whatever religion the husband had would become the religion of the household. And so if the husband kind of got transformed and became a Christian, well, then that would be the case for the whole family. But that wasn't the case with women. So there were plenty of examples, and this is particularly who, who Peter is addressing, a situation where wives have come to faith, but their husband still has a different faith that he practices. And so he wants to particularly give these women instructions on how do you actually live in such a way that's going to bring credible witness to the gospel and potentially win your husband for Christ. So there's a couple of ideas as to why Peter might be addressing women more prominently than husbands. Uh, that being said, in Ephesians 5, Paul actually gives more attention to husbands than he does to wives. So that's a, a nice little balance out there. But as we will come to see, even though Peter gives one verse to husbands, he packs a real punch into that one verse and, and we'll get quite a lot out of it. So there's just as much for the husbands or for the men here this morning as there is for the wives. Now, an important thing that we need to consider when we're looking at these seven verses is immediately when Peter addresses wives and husbands, he begins with this precursor, wives in the same way. Husbands in the same way. And we need to consider, well, in what way is Peter referring to here? Well, just before Peter addresses uh, wives and husbands, he's speaking to slaves and he uses the illustration of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's particularly addressing slaves who are in an oppressive situation and he's addressing the whole situation of suffering in a difficult 
context and he pulls on the ultimate example of what it means to suffer unjustly and how to actually bear up under that suffering in such a way that may bring glory to God. And so he points them to Christ. And in those verses 22 to 25, I guess in summary, what Peter is saying is that Christ willingly put aside his rights in order to serve and ultimately redeem. And so I want you to follow in the footsteps of Christ. So when Peter says, in the same way, he is referring to the same way uh, as Jesus served others. So let's get into 1 Peter 3, and we'll just break it down. Let's look at these first four verses. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, I just want to make a few remarks about submission in the Bible, generally speaking, that again helps frame up what Peter is saying here in verse 1. First and foremost, all Christians are to be submitted to God. Uh, James 4, 7 instructs this, as do other passages in Scripture. So the very first, you know, everyone is equal in that sense in that we are need to be submitted before God as our supreme authority. Uh, Secondly, in a Christian marriage, wives and husbands are instructed to submit to one another, to be mutually submissive to one another out of their mutual reverence for Christ. That's how all of Paul's teaching on submission is kind of framed up. And then thirdly, I would like to add that this teaching of mutual submission is not in conflict with the biblical principle of male headship, uh, which in fact is not about authority, But it's actually about service and sacrifice and responsibility. So it's really important that we understand that that is the biblical backdrop for teaching on submission. So if we have that in mind, let's just consider a bit more particularly what Peter is saying here. Now, when we read these words, wives, submit to your husbands, um, as a modern reader, that can, for some of us, be really jarring, and, 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 and there's something within us that just rises up, uh, particularly for women, I'm sure, and, and we just feel like, you know, there's something that just doesn't sit right with this. Well, the first thing we have to understand is that this was not at all unusual for women of the day. So if we actually try and understand the reading of this text from the original authors, women were inferior at this time. And it was actually the social expectation that women would submit, uh, that in fact they would very often live in fear of their husband. And so we read it and we kind of freak out. But when they actually read this, this was totally normal. Um, But Peter's actually going to do something very different here. Uh, He's going to reframe what it actually means and looks like to submit as a Christian. Your motive is going to be entirely different. We have to acknowledge whenever we come to verses of submission, I think it's particularly important that we just pause for a moment and acknowledge the abuse that has unfortunately uh, taken place because of such verses. They've been misused and women sadly 
and indeed wives have been abused and mistreated for many years, I'm sure, and many centuries, with this verse not being correctly understood. And whilst we don't want to go and change the verse because it's God's word, we just need to understand that, the, the un, that it has been misused. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that, that abuse and misuse does cloud the way that we come to this text. Um, there are a whole bunch of things that submit does not mean, and it's important that we hear that. Submission does not mean that women are... Um, somehow unequal or less than men. Uh, it does not mean that wives are to be doormats and sort of check their brains out at the door. It does not mean that wives cannot have intelligent conversations with their husbands and, and it also does not mean that wives have to always agree with their husbands. There's actually a lot of things that it does not mean. We're going to talk about what it does, but it's important that we appreciate what it does not mean. It also does not mean that wives on every occasion have to submit to the will of their husband above the will of Christ. The will of Christ, in fact, comes first. And interestingly, last week, we spoke about the fact that if you're serving as a citizen under the government, and the government wants you to do something that is in conflict with the will of Christ, there are times when it's actually necessary for civil disobedience. And in fact, the same could be said on a micro level here within a marriage, that if a husband wants a wife to do something that is outside of God's will um, or outside of God's law or word, then in fact, civil disobedience within the marriage is entirely appropriate. So there's a, a bunch of things that submission does not mean. But Paul's concern here, sorry, Peter's concern, very much in line with Paul's concern in Ephesians 5.22, is that wives would be submissive to their husband as to the Lord, as to the Lord. So Peter is now saying, this is not, you're not doing this because this is what the social norm or expectation is, but you ought to actually have this posture towards your husband because this is the posture that all Christians have towards God. Does that make sense? And that submission before God then actually informs every other human relationship. But as we will see in this text, um, it, it's, it's amazing the close connection between the intimate connection with God and then your closest earthly relationship, which for many people is their spouse, and how that the interplay with those two. Now Peter says your preaching or your words is actually not going to win him over. It's your character. It's who you are. And uh, Peter references two words, purity and reverence, that he has already addressed and spoken about in his letter. So it's really helpful for us to just consider, well, what do these words mean in the context of the letter in which he's writing? So in chapter 1, verse 2, Peter talks about the Holy Spirit, which is sanctifying the believers. And that is the same process as being purified. So firstly, purity comes first and foremost from God. But then in verse 22, he talks about you've been, you've, through obedience to God's word, you are being purified. And so God purifies us, but then we continue to remain purified as we are obedient and allow our lives to be shaped by God's word. 
And you might recall in verse 17, where Peter, referring to God as Father, reminds his readers that God is also judge, and that in fact one day we will all stand and give an account, not for our salvation if our faith is in Christ, but for how we have lived our lives, for what we have done with our faith. And in that sense, we are to live in reverence of God, in awe of who he is and all that he has done. And so to live in this way before God is to live with a posture of constant humility before God. Uh, And that humility is then to actually play out in the way that we relate to all people, but most especially our spouses. And so what we see here is when you're actually, as a woman, and of course this is interchangeable for men as well, But when you are living with Christ as your first and foremost priority, when God is at the centre, when you are seeking to live according to his word and be purified, and when you're living in that sense of awe and reverence for who he is, well, that is going to affect the way that you conduct yourselves in all of your relationships. And that way of life, we are told, is a very attractive way of living. And in fact, it is going to win people over. It's going to win people over in marriage, but I believe it's also going to win friends and colleagues and neighbours over as they see the way that we live different, distinct, grace-fueled lives. Now, as I mentioned, I don't believe that these virtues are exclusive to women. Uh, Peter talks about the purification and the reverence equally to men as well. Uh, The word adornment uh, comes from the Greek word cosmeo, which is where we get the root for world as well as cosmetics. And essentially it it means um, to order something, but in a really beautiful, delicate way, to make something really attractive. And so Peter is now going to do the comparison game between external beauty and internal beauty. And he's writing into a context where, I mean, of course, it's no different from today. But women would go to great lengths and great extravagance with their, their hair and their jewellery and their clothing, in a sense, to kind of outdo one another, but also to try and become more important and to be seen as a more beautiful and important figure in their husband's eyes. And again, in this culture, women were not equal with men. And so one of the ways that women could perhaps try and just climb that ladder a little bit is to try and outdo one another and be a little bit more beautiful than the other woman. Does that make sense? So that your husband is not going to be attracted to this other woman, but, she, but he's going to be attracted to you. So this is, again, this is the context that Peter is writing to. What he says is it's very contrary then, and it's very contrary to what the world will tell you today. Um, and all of these things, whether it's hairstyles, jewellery, or fine attire, it's no different today, really, is it, than what it was to Peter's original audience. And essentially what he's saying is you can't purchase true beauty. You know, no amount of transactions is going to actually bring you the kind of real, deep, lasting inner beauty that can only come from God. According to Peter, your inner beauty, it, it never needs makeup. I love this uh, quote that I read. A gentle and quiet spirit is a supernatural quality. It's a spirit-ordained thing that God manufactures and produces. Now, this gentle and quiet spirit that Peter is referring to here, I've been doing a lot of work in my Greek Bible. 
And I went back and I thought, hang on, are these words, because you'll see later in the message, there are words sometimes that there's, there's different words and different meanings. And I kind of thought, well, I, not all women are gentle and quiet. Um, and th that's okay. Uh, what does this mean for them? Um, you know, there'll be some women who just totally identify with those two descriptions, and there'll be others who don't. Uh, so I can't, well, maybe there's a different meaning here. Maybe if we go back to the original, maybe there's a, a different word that's perhaps a little bit more, ex, you know, inclusive or, uh, or wide-ranging. But no, uh, in fact, the words that, that Peter used, uh, the gentle is meek. And it's that really, that, that um, it's a word that's actually used to describe Christ on many occasions. Again, it's that posture of just real humility. Uh, and a posture of wanting to serve. And a quiet spirit, again, speaks of a, a, just an inner peace, an inner trust, and what virtues they are. And I kind of thought, you know, look, at the end of the day, this is what's written in the Bible, wives and women. So uh, rather than try and find an alternative or rather than try and find a different word or a different meaning that perhaps you know, is, is more inclusive, I kind of thought, well, I like this because you can't manufacture these things by yourself. It's something that God does within you by his spirit, the sanctification of God's Holy Spirit in the life of men and women, but in this instance, in the life of wives, if you will humbly submit yourself to that sanctifying process of God's spirit, he will imbue in you qualities that will make you so attractive and your inner beauty will continue to be enriched. Uh, so remember, ladies, it's not something that you can just manufacture or purchase. It's actually something that God will do within you. And the scripture says that it, it's very precious in God's eyes. Now, I thought to myself as a man or as a husband, if there was a scripture that said this virtue or this quality is really precious to God in his eyes, I'm just speaking for myself here, but I would want to go after it. <laughs> I would want to go after it. And, and I would do that by seeking God and saying, Lord, pour this spirit into my heart, into my life, so that I might become more pleasing to you, that I might be more precious to you. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? And so I guess, again, to the, the, the ladies and the wives in the room um, who undeniably can spend a lot of time and energy and resources, both women and men can do, and it's not a bad thing. Peter's not saying um, to neglect the outer over the inner. He's just saying just focus more on the inner because that's the, the true, the true beauty is the inner woman. And so the question there is then how much time, energy and resource uh, is invested into your inner beauty, adorning your inner beauty. And I just want to encourage all the, the women and the wives in the room to really give that priority. Um, that'll look different for each of you, but this is what the scriptures said is going to bring out that beautiful inner uh, beauty. Let's keep moving. 1 Peter 3, 5 to 6. Peter is now going to draw on an example or an illustration to support his argument or the case that he's putting forward. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way 
to fear. And so Peter draws on the example of Sarah. And in fact, it's actually a really funny example. It comes from Genesis 18. And in this instance, uh, Abraham and and Sarah have have gone on their journey. Um, At this point in time, Abraham is 100 years old. He's already had Ishmael with Hagar. And this is the chapter where three angels, uh, the heading will actually say the Lord visits Abraham. But in the story, there are three men who we would assume to be angels visit Abram. And there's this funny conversation that takes place where Sarah is in the tent And uh, she's already prepared a meal for the three angels and Abraham, and they're having this conversation. And uh, Abraham and Sarah, the writer tells us, were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself in the tent as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. It's kind of an odd text. It's the only time in the scripture that Sarah refers to Abraham as Lord, which, by the way, simply is a term of respect, and it simply means sir uh, in in our modern day. so that's the example that Peter draws on, uh, which, is, which is rather quite humorous. But I think really what Peter is probably doing is he's wanting to hold up an example for women to follow. And certainly Sarah was. Uh, more broadly speaking, what we see with Sarah is that she, she, she followed her husband Abraham into an unknown future, and she did so willingly. Uh, Even when the Egyptian pharaoh was trying to hit on her, she even agreed to follow Abraham's foolish plan um, to go along with his lie that she was his sister. And it's kind of... They were half-related, so it's not entirely a lie, but nonetheless, it was a bit of a dodgy situation, and Abraham didn't demonstrate huge trust in God. But what we see in Sarah is still a willingness to serve her husband and to go along with him. And it's really interesting in verse 6 that Peter talks about um, modelling yourself off Sarah, who did not give way to fear. And I think that's also why he's drawing on the model of Sarah, because we don't see within Sarah a fearful spirit. We see within Sarah a willing spirit to follow where God leads and to trust that God was leading Abraham and therefore she was going to follow his lead and go with him. Uh, Sarah is considered like a mother of Israel. Um, Obviously, you would know that Abraham is kind of like this father of all nations and the significant figure that he is. So Sarah being his wife is really up there, particularly for Jewish readers who would have been some of the original audience. Um, There are only two women that get a mention in the kind of the hall of fame in Hebrews 11, Sarah being one of them, Rahab being another. So that's why Peter has drawn on Sarah in this particular case. But what Peter was doing there is he's drawing on an example that his readers can relate to um, and find inspiration from. Uh, But please, you don't need to stop there. I think, again, as modern readers, we need to look at this text and particularly for women, to consider who are the godly women that I can seek to model my life on? Who are the women who are following God without fear that I can be mentored by? And uh, there are plenty of those beautiful women here in this church. 
And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. And I know that there is a lot of that going on. Um, but you might have other women in your life who inspire you to really continue to put Christ first and live for him in your relationships. Now to address the husbands. 1 Peter 3, 7. This is what, this is what your Bible will read if you have the 2011 NIV. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, if you go back to the original Greek and and simply just translate every Greek word for an English word, this is how it reads. And this will help you appreciate the good work that Bible translators do. Husbands... Likewise, dwelling together according to knowledge as with a weaker vessel, the female, assigning honour as indeed co-heirs of the grace of life for the not to be hindered the prayers of you. And the words there that are underlined are what I'm going to quickly address because Peter is he's saying so much here in one verse. Uh, and it, going back to the original wording actually gives us better insight. We're in a better position to understand really what is being communicated here. So according to knowledge, according to knowledge, what Peter is saying to husbands here is you've got to study your wife. You've got to become lifelong learners of your wife. You need to know her deeply. You need to know her hopes, her dreams, her aspirations. What makes her come alive? Because only then are you going to be able to truly love her and serve her and live with her as your partner in life. The deeper you know your wife, the more intimately you know her, the better you'll be able to serve her and love her. And I'm pretty sure, and we learned that Peter himself was a married man. It's probably another reason why he only gave husbands one verse. Uh, But... Peter was married, and I think, you know, I can only comment on what it's like for men today, but I'm pretty sure that not a lot's changed. And here's the reality. Men can so easily become so self-absorbed in themselves, in their pursuits, whether it's career, whether it's hobbies, whether it's their own friendships. As men, we are shocking at this. And sadly, often women can sort of be left as trophies on the side. And there's a real danger, isn't there, for guys? They go all out trying to win the woman over uh, during courtship and, 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 and engagement. And then once the couple are married, over a, after a while, husbands can seriously start to neglect their wives. I'm guilty of this. I did this early in our marriage. I was telling Sue during the week. And that led to some, some pretty you know, t- difficult circumstances for Bron and I. Uh, But men, I think, can become so absorbed in themselves and their own pursuits. And so to counter that, Peter is saying, you've got to pursue your wife. You've got to make her your passion, her your priority. You've got to learn to know her and understand her so that you can live with her and serve her needs well. According to knowledge. Wow. There's a lot more in that than be considerate, isn't there? You know, when you read that, be considerate, it's kind of like, oh, be nice, be gentle, be respectful. But according to knowledge, wow. Well, that takes us down a whole other path 
of what it means and what Peter's trying to get at here, I believe. Um, some of you will read Gary Smalley. He's a champion. Um, early in our married life, Bronnie and I read a number of his books. He's a bit of a, a relationship expert. And uh, he, he wrote two very famous popular books, one called If Only He Knew and If Only She Knew. And both of these books are really trying to help men and women, husbands and wives, understand each other. And here's a quote from If Only He Knew, the book addressed to men. I would venture to say that most marital difficulties centre around one fact. Men and women are totally different. The differences, emotional, mental and physical, are so extreme that without a concentrated effort to understand them, it is nearly impossible to have a happy marriage. A famous psychiatrist once said, after 30 years of studying women, I asked myself, what is it that they really want? If this was his conclusion, just imagine how little we know about our wives. You know, it's a cracking quote, isn't it? And again, it just really fits into that whole notion of becoming lifelong learners of your wives. Now, I was reflecting on this a little bit myself. And what does this mean for me? And I was thinking, gosh, Bron and I at the moment, we are really in a season where most of our conversation is around detail. Who's taking which boy where? Have you got the groceries? Who's cooking dinner tonight? You know, have you spoken to this person about that? And literally, very easily, life and conversation can just revolve around details of what's happening, who's getting here, where, and it's just all about management. And there's actually very little heart connection. And I thought to myself, when we go out on a date or when we actually get time alone and we have got all of that stuff out of the way and I can start to ask her questions about herself. I don't always do this, but I thought, I thought of those times when I've started to just pepper her with questions about her work or about her dreams or you know, different things that are happening for her. She just comes alive. And it's beautiful. Uh, and I just get the opportunity to sit there and listen and, and it's amazing, something shifts in that moment. We, we move to a new level of intimacy because now I'm really starting to understand what really, you know, is, is what's really going on for you, what really motivates you, this kind of just everyday doing life business. Well, yeah, we've got to do it and it's important, but that's not helping me understand who you are and what drives you and what fuels you. And so here's a challenge to all the guys in the room who have wives to become students of her and to take time out to ask those questions and watch her come alive. Peter speaks about the, the, our more modern rendering says the weaker partner, but this we go back again to the original, it's the weaker vessel, which is perhaps a little bit more helpful because this in, this in no way means intellectually or spiritually or morally or mentally, and it, it's, it's an exception. There are, of course, exceptions to this rule, but it's a purely physical statement. So it means that maybe eight... Nine, maybe seven, I'm not sure, times that a husband has an arm wrestle with his wife, the husband's going to win. Uh, it's not always the case, of course, but that's kind of all he's saying here. And, but what, what, what really is at the heart of why he has written this is to sort of communicate the fact that she's fragile. She's precious. You've got to treat her as such. 
And again, the illustration for me that I just see so tangibly in my own household is the Tupperware cups in the bottom drawer. They get chucked into the dishwasher. They're pretty much unbreakable, so the kids can toss them around, and it doesn't matter if they break. Um, you know, and the kids are playing around with these things, and there's really no care shown to them. But we have beautiful fine wine glasses that are washed by hand, that are in the high cupboard that the children can't reach and touch. And they're in a pride of place. And this is actually the, this is the message that Peter's trying to communicate. Your wife is fragile. She's precious. She is deserving of your attention and your care. You don't treat her like a Tupperware cup. You treat her like your favourite wine glass. That's the kind of emphasis that I think is wanting to be made here. Co-heirs of grace. Peter is saying, and again, this is radical. Your wife is your partner for life. And he refers to life as a gracious gift from God. Just life, like now, here on earth, not just eternity, but right here, your life with your wife. You have been blessed. You have been gifted with this beautiful woman who is your equal in God's eyes. She is your equal, so treat her accordingly. Uh, and it's interesting too, the whole, the word co-heir speaks of an inheritance, something that you're going to receive at a latter date. You know, in one sense, Peter brings that right into now. Uh, but there's also, you know, uh, I guess a, a sense of it being in the future that you will both be co-heirs of God's eternal grace and you will res- receive salvation together. And it's interesting because, again, in this context, it was only the male firstborn son who received the inheritance and then the subsequent sons. The royal wedding was actually really fascinating recently because I did a little bit of reading just through the paper about the succession, and it's all about the firstborn son. So even uh, Will's son, George, trumps Harry just because Will is the firstborn son. Uh, And so it's fascinating. But again, this is the culture in which Peter is speaking to And he's now bringing women up to that equal co-heir with the men, with the husband. It's great. And then finally, God takes the way men treat their wives very seriously. Very seriously. And there's this incredible close connection between your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse. And basically, Peter's saying, if you don't treat her right, your prayers are going to go unanswered, buddy. So, you know, it's a, it's a, again, it's a real call for men to know their wives, to love their wives, to serve them and treat them as delicate, fragile, um, and, and God, then your prayers will not go, uh, become hindered. So that, my brothers and sisters, is 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. And I thought to myself, boy... How do I summarise this and just kind of wrap this up so that you're not just left hanging? And remember at the very beginning, all of this teaching is kind of framed up under that headline statement of live such good lives that others may see you and that some may come to know Christ. For some, that may be your spouse. Uh, But this fits more broadly into a teaching of Scripture where ultimately what Peter is just wanting to say to his followers in, you know, this most kind of least intimate relationship, which is that of the state, he goes from that place to this most intimate point of connection, which is with your spouse. And in all of it, he's just saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. 
set your eyes on him, live for him, and all of your relationships are going to fall into play according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just the practicality of your word and how it teaches us how to live in such a way that not only benefits each one of us and those we relate to, but more importantly, will actually bring glory and honour to your name. Because this is how you've designed us as human creatures to live. Lord, I just want to take a moment now and just thank you for every single person who's in this room. Lord, you know each one by name and you know the background and the circumstances that each person finds themselves in here today. Lord, I just want to acknowledge and pray for those dear women who've never been married and who would have loved to have had that opportunity, but that opportunity just didn't come. It wasn't part of your plan for them. If there is a a tinge of sadness with them today, I just pray that your spirit would meet them where they're at and minister to them. Father, I pray for women, for wives who've lost their their husband and who who are grieving that. And today's message just brought all that to the surface. Just pray that you would come and minister, meet each person where they're at in that place. Father, I want to pray for women who find themselves uh, married to a non-believer. And I want to pray that, as Susie did, that you would strengthen them by your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, that they might come away from this morning feeling better equipped by your word and through your Holy Spirit just to live out their faith in such a beautiful way that your name would be honoured. And we pray for all the women in this church who have unbelieving husbands, that in your time, each one of these men would come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. Father, I want to pray for husbands this morning in church. I want to pray uh, that you would bless them and that you would give them a renewed sense of love and desire for their wife. That, Lord, each man who has a wife would long to become a student of her, would ask deep and intimate questions of her that will really bring her alive and that, Lord, in this church you would build strong and lasting marriages. I pray that you would raise the men up in this church as husbands, Lord, uh, to take on the godly responsibility of being a servant uh, to their family and to their wife. God, I want to take a moment now to pray for men who are not yet married, who maybe never had the opportunity or have not yet had the opportunity And I pray to God that you would just meet them where they are at by your Holy Spirit. Minister to them in a way that only you can. Fill that gap. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, minister in a way that only you can. Lord, thank you for the way that you've spoken to us this morning. Uh, May you continue by your Holy Spirit just to help us as your people to stay focused firmly on you, Jesus Christ. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And in Jesus' name we all pray together. Amen.